purity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Amen. Question 35. Let's read the answer together. The shorter catechism. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. How can we be truly happy? How do we attain happiness? This is certainly something that people would like to know. There was a commercial recently that I saw that said there is not one American dream, there are 330 million American dreams. In other words, everyone gets to sort of define for themselves what the good life is. The commercial put it forward as if this is a good thing. But of course, a society cannot sustain that many visions of the good life. There has to be some shared values that tie together our idea of what is good. But what seems to drive most people today? What is the the, the kind of age in which we live? Well, it's an age in which people are constantly seeking to satisfy cravings and lusts. We seek the things that we most desire. We spend our time pursuing those things that we most desire or crave because we believe they will make us happy. It could be small things. It can be very big things. But the truth is that desire for happiness is not a bad thing. To want to be joyful, to want to be content, to want to be, perhaps the best word biblically would be satisfied, is not a bad thing. Thomas Brooks, one of my favorite Puritan authors, says this. A desire of happiness is planted in all men by the constitution of nature. Now that's something you don't necessarily expect to hear from a Puritan. Puritans we think of as kind of killjoys and never wanted to do anything fun and cut off all of the 
the fun activities in life. He says, a desire of happiness is planted in all men by the constitution of nature. It's, it's inside of you. You want to be satisfied. You want to be content. You want to be joyful. You want to be happy. Then he says this, the desire of happiness is left in man for a stock to graft holiness on. This case, the entire case that he makes, in fact, he has this entire volume in his works about seeking after holiness and sanctification. And what he is saying is that once you realize that your greatest avenue to happiness is sanctified holiness, it is then that you have a chance to experience true satisfaction and contentment in Christ. It is holiness that will bring us the greatest happiness in this life and then we will seek it in the way that God would desire us to do so he says this happiness like Rachel is so fair and so beautiful a thing in other words everybody would want happiness it's not hard to want and to desire it Uh, happiness like Rachel is so fair and so beautiful a thing that everyone is apt to fall in love with it and earnestly to desire it yea Many there be that would serve twice seven years to enjoy it. But by the standing law of that heavenly country above, the younger sister must never be bestowed before the elder. You can never enjoy fair Rachel, heaven and happiness, except you are first married to tender-eyed Leah. Real holiness, he that will have heaven must have union and communion with Christ. And he that will have union and communion with Christ must be holy. This is just one way that we think about the doctrine of sanctification, which differs from justification. Justification is uh, God forgiving the believer of his or her sins and declaring him or her to be righteous. Sanctification is different in that it is not that kind of punctiliar act, that one-time act. Rather, it's an ongoing process. Sanctification uh, can also be difficult to consider and understand because it varies from Christian to Christian in degree. It's often mysterious, even as we evaluate it in ourselves. And yet we see that it is the work of God's free grace, that it happens in every believer, and it's important to consider and know about. So first, sanctification is necessary and important. Paul uh, begins this passage in Ephesians 4 with a phrase that he normally does not use at the beginning of an exhortation. He says, uh, I declare, the NIV says this, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. One commentator says that this is so unusual for an exhortation or the beginning of an exhortation that it gives a startlingly solemn tone. It is Paul demanding that we focus in on what he's saying right here to say this is absolutely important when a, a speaker says, I want you to be very careful That you listen to what I'm saying now. That's the kind of thing that Paul is saying. This is to show how seriously he regards the necessity that converts break with their former sinful lives. The kind of uh, exhortation that he gives, the kind of life that he outlines at the end, the second half of Ephesians 4. He's saying, I want you to understand how important it is that you listen and that you get this. Brooks goes on to say this. in regards to the necessity of sanctification. Because what Paul is communicating here is that it is absolutely necessary that true believers, Christians, live in accordance with all of these 
things. In other words, sanctification is not some kind of optional thing in the Christian life. It, it's, it's not as if, okay, everyone, all believers believe in Jesus Christ, and then some are going to follow with a life that reflects that. Right? That's not the proper way to think about it. Everyone who is united to Jesus Christ, everyone who knows him as Savior, will indeed be sanctified. Justification and sanctification are necessarily linked in that way, even if we need to understand how they are linked. Now, Thomas Brooks says this, If I were the fittest man on earth to preach a sermon to the whole world, uh, gathered together in one congregation, and had a high mountain for my pulpit, from which I could see the whole world, and if I were furnished with a voice of brass, as loud as a trumpet of the archangel, and all the world might hear me, I would choose to preach on no other text but Hebrews 12, 14, which says this, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. There is a sanctified holiness that all those who see the Lord, all of those who enter into the kingdom of heaven will have in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is necessary. It is necessary. Well, how do we know that it is necessary? God has called us to it. God has called us to it. Second Peter 1, 3. God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Right? He called us and he gave, us, he gave to us all things that pertain to godliness. 1 Thessalonians 4. God has not called us for impurity, but to holiness. What has God called us to? To holiness, to good works. We have no call to sin or to fill our lives with sin. So God has called us to sanctification. Sanctification, secondly, is necessary because it is evidence of our justification. It is actually the evidence of our, just, our justification. We think of our reading from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols uh, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will, move, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, from God's redemption flows forth the practical living. Sanctification is necessary because it is our title to the new covenant. By God's power and by God's grace, it is that by which we lay claim to God's new covenant mercies. As we read in Jeremiah 31 this morning, he puts our law within us and writes it. He puts his law within us and writes it on our hearts. Hebrews twelve fourteen says once again, no man will see the Lord without this holiness. Again, emphasizing its necessity. Sanctification also shows our election. In Second Thessalonians chapter two, we always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification shows our election that God has chosen us. We are among the chosen people of God. Sanctification, of course, how does it happen? Well, it happens in union with Christ. It happens through the power of of Christ. It happens by God's free grace, which comes to us in Christ. 
In Colossians chapter 3, we are called to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He goes on to say, Christ is all and in all. By faith, we participate in the death and resurrection of Christ, which frees us from sin's guilt and its power. All that to say, a sanctified life is necessary for the Christian. Paul paints a picture of sanctification in contrast here in Ephesians chapter 4. He lays out first the depravity of the whole man. He reminds the Ephesians of their former way of life. That they were corrupted in mind and affections and will. Everything that belongs to the inner life was corrupted by sin. Verse 18 they, uh, they, the Gentiles, are darkened in their understanding. He goes on to say that ignorance is in them. There is a hardening of their hearts in verse 18 as well. Verse 19 of Ephesians 4, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It ends with a, con- with a total loss of, your, of the control of your will. You see how sin has this process of destruction in a human life. There's the beginning of a false knowledge, darkened in your understanding. It leads to a hardness of heart. There's a hardening of their heart and it issues forth in an inability to control the lust of your will. It is a total corruption of the person from top to bottom. Why does Paul do this? Why is he speaking of non-Christians this way to Christians in Ephesus who had come out of that life? Well, he's wanting to zoom out and help them see the futility, the foolishness in living for vanity, in living for pleasure, in living for sin, in living without sanctified holiness, in living not for the glory of God, but for the glory of self, in living not for compassion and love and tenderheartedness, but anger and rage and bitterness. Oftentimes in wisdom literature, one of the things that the Bible writers wrestle with is that if you look at the whole earth, you will see that the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. And so if you look at it with Earthly, with an earthly lens, you could be convinced that there is no advantage to living for righteousness. It is in places like this that Paul is wanting to remind his people about the futility, the foolishness of those who live for vanity, for pleasure. Because what is it? They are enslaved to sin. They do not live with freedom. They do not live with joy. They are enslaved Uh, to their sin. A life of sinful rebellion is pure folly. It issues forth from stupidity, continues in a heart turned to stone. It ends up controlling the person as lust multiplies, as it says there in verse 19, a continual lust for more. So he sets out with the depravity of the whole man, and then he lays out sanctification, which what is that? Well, if sin leads us into the corruption of the whole man. Sanctification in Christ must mean the renewal of the whole man. It must reverse the effects of sin. 
And so you think about how sin affects knowledge and affections and will. The grace of God must renew all of those things in that order. And that's exactly what Paul does in this passage in Ephesians 4. The Catechism says we are renewed after the whole man in the image of God. Image of God is a very interesting subject in in relation to sanctification. Most of the time what Paul is talking about is really the the image of God in Christ. Who is the ideal human being who has ever lived? Well, of course, it's Jesus. Who is the one who lived with an unstained image of God? It was Jesus Christ. And so united to him and given his spirit, the kind of renewal that we experience is that which makes us in a sense, more human. We're living the way that God intended us to live in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. The foundation for sanctification in Ephesians 4 is learning Christ. What does this mean, learning Christ? Well, in the NIV here, it says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Other Uh, translations actually do a better job of that. Uh, The English Standard Version, for instance, says, this is not the way you learned Christ. It's not simply coming to know Christ. It is learning Christ. This is what one uh, scholar says about learning Christ. To learn Christ does not mean merely to learn his doctrines, but to attain the knowledge of Christ as the Son of God, God in our nature, the Holy One of God, the Savior from sin, whom to know is holiness and life. In other words, when we learn Christ, we learn Him in every facet of our lives. So when we are becoming more holy, that is learning Christ. It's not just coming to know about Him. So the Christian life itself is a process of learning Christ, which is more than attaining knowledge. It's an all-encompassing process that includes what we know, what we love, and what we choose. Another scholar says this, Jesus is the headmaster, the teaching subject, the method, the curriculum, the academy, and the gift of new life. Uh, Then the gift of new life takes the place of a diploma. In other words, we're learning Christ in every aspect, in every facet. What happens is a new life. There are three steps here that Paul gives to us to the sanctified life. It is putting off the old man. It is being renewed in the attitude of our minds. And it is putting on the new man. This is what the three things that Paul calls us to do there in uh, verses 22 through 24. So first, we put off the old man. We put off the old man. How do we do that? What does it mean to put off the old man. We see this in Ephesians 4. We see it in Colossians 3. We see it also in the book of Romans places. What does it mean to put off the old man? William Still was a pastor in Scotland. He was famous for challenging people on this point. That the old is dead in Christ. It's crucified with Christ. Christ has put it to death. And so he would say something to the effect that God has said that the old has died and the new has come. The old has passed away. But you say in your heart, I do not feel like the old man has died. I do not feel like my sin is dead. And he would say, well, it's God's word against yours. God says the old has passed and the new has come. You say, I don't feel like that is true. 
it becomes God's word against ours. In other words, it's a battle of faith. Whose word are you going to believe? Are you going to believe God's word? Or are you going to believe the word in the back of your mind saying it cannot be so? Romans chapter 6 says this. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, salvation by grace. You're saved by free grace. You live however you want. Do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. You're saved by grace. Paul says, should we do that? By no means. Of course not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You have died to sin, Paul says. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. See, often it's God's word against ours. We can convince ourselves that the old man has not been put to death in Christ. God says he has. In C.S. Lewis's wonderful work, The Great Divorce, there's an especially powerful scene. It's a kind of a spiritual, a spiritual dream that's going on in this book. There's a young man in this dream, carries a lizard. The lizard is engorged, attached to the man's shoulder and whispering into his ear. The lizard represents the man's lust. An angel then comes to the man and asks the man if he would like this lizard to be killed. He can kill this lizard for this man. And of course, the, 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 the idea you're getting in your head is that if this lizard is killed, this man's going to be set free. And that's often the way that it is, right? We see the sin in other people. And we say, if this sin, if you, by God's grace, by God's power, can put this sin to death, you will be set free. And that's the, the idea that you get as you're reading this. It's obvious that the lizard is sucking the life out of this young man. But he makes up all kinds of excuses why the angel should not kill him. So the angel says, would you like me to kill this lizard? He, well, he says, well, I don't want to bother you with killing it. I, I don't want to, you know, put you in any, any trouble. He says, well, the lizard's not presently bothering me because he's sleeping. He says, I'll, I'll be able to get it under control myself with sort of gradually working through it. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't currently feel well enough, doesn't feel, feel strong enough to go through with the, this operation. He thinks perhaps killing the lizard would kill him. And he says, well, I better go and get a, 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 another doctor's opinion and come back later. The, the man finally is close to letting the angel do it. And then the lizard himself says that killing him We'll kill the man too. And that's what our sin tries to convince us of. So often we convince ourselves, well, if I go all in on putting off the old self, killing this sin in my life, I might not survive. What will I be like without this sin? And then, of course, that sin which we have kept around ourselves for so long will say the same thing. Yes, well, of course you cannot live without me. We won't be able to live without it. 
So in, in this story, the angel is standing there with flaming hands. And you just get this idea that all it would need is just to barely touch this lizard. It would be incinerated in a moment. And it goes on. And finally, uh, finally, the young man relents. And that's really the, the, the kind of idea we are to get. If we truly let go of our sin, give it over to God, and trust his, God's power in Christ by the Spirit to kill it, if we truly lay it down, it will be gone. But we make excuses. We hedge. We hold on. Because we think we can't live without it. Paul says, put it off. Paul says, zoom out. See the destructiveness and the futility of sin. See the foolishness of it. See how it issues forth from a darkened understanding and a hardened heart. See how it ends up in a will that is completely enslaved to the bondage of sin. Zoom out. See the futility of it. Throw it away. Put off the old self. It's God's word against ours. Secondly, be renewed in the attitude of your minds. Be renewed in the attitude of your minds. In Christ, the trash of a corrupted mind is put to death. So Paul will go on to speak of things in Ephesians 5 like falsehood, bitterness, rage, anger, impurity, greed. All of those things belong to the corrupted mind of the old self. In Christ, the Holy Spirit renews our spirit so that our lives are lived in a holy way from the inside out. Thomas Watson says this, That, therefore, which needs to be renewed is not merely outward habits or modes of life, not merely transient tempers or dispositions, but the interior principle of life, which lies back of all that is outward, phenomenal or transient. We're setting out on to the rest of Matthew 5 now where Jesus and his comments on the law and the Sermon on the Mount, it's always going to be looking into the heart of man. That that's what the law of God does. That's what God himself does. He evaluates from the heart. And the heart is central to a life lived unto God. It is, in fact, the issue Guard your heart with all vigilance, Proverbs 4 says, for from it flow the springs of life. Jesus says very similar things in Matthew chapter 12, what issues forth from the heart. And from the heart determines what we say in our mouths. So this is the only way that we can become righteous before God in our sanctification. This is the only way that we can achieve this sanctified holiness. It has to be through the heart that God gives to us. It has to be by his grace. It has to be by his power. So what do we do? We have faith. We believe in these promises. We exercise faith in Christ and trust that God is creating our hearts anew. That he is renewing us in the attitude of our minds. That he is clearing out the junk of our sinful understanding and filling it with a sanctified understanding. One author puts it this way, the newborn soul delights in the things of God and abhors the things of the world and the flesh. 
Our purposes, feelings, desires, and understandings are fresh and different. We see the world differently. The Bible seems to be a new book, and though we may have read it before, there is a beauty about it which we never saw before, and which we wonder at not having perceived. The whole face of nature seems to us to be changed, and we seem to be in a new world. The heavens and the earth are filled with new wonders, and all things seem now to speak forth the praise of God. There are new feelings toward all people, a new kind of love toward family and friends, a new compassion never before felt for enemies, a new love for all mankind. The things we once loved, we now detest. The sin we once held on to, we now desire to put away forever. Perhaps many of us have had times like this where we see the word of God with a freshness, where we are seeing things that we have not seen or understood before, where we are considering the beauty of God, the beauty of Christ in ways that we have not before. And there's a freshness to it all. May God keep it fresh all of our days. We are to be renewed in the attitude of our minds, as it says in Ephesians 4. We put off the old man, be renewed, and then lastly, put on the new man. Put on the new man. Well, who or what is the new man? The new man essentially is Christ. Christ is the new man. We seek to live a life that is characterized by the character of Jesus. Romans chapter 6. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now Paul, certainly there, there is some reference here to eternal life. But his conclusion here is not thinking primarily about eternity, but thinking primarily about practical living because he says this, he said, this is a, the, die, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. When we regard ourselves this way, when we think about ourselves, when we consider ourselves according to these things, when we are renewed in our minds as we just spoke about, then by faith there is nothing to do but put on that which is flowing out of our hearts. You put off the old self, you understand and know that in Christ the old self is done away with, it is killed. You are renewed with the, in the attitude of your minds by the grace of God. He fills our minds with truths from scripture illuminated by the Holy Spirit. To put on the new man is to do nothing but by faith live the life that is then flowing out of our hearts. In other words, it is a call to live in accordance with your renewed heart. To follow the leading of the Spirit to live the life that has already been shown to us in Christ. So Colossians 3, bear with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. 
We live the life of love that has already been shown to us. The way in which God dealt with you, that is the way in which you are to deal with others. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So to put on the new man, to seek to live the life of Christ, is to seek to live the life of love that has already been shown to us by God in Jesus Christ. So, finally, sanctification is a necessary work of God. And it varies in degrees and for that reason remains somewhat mysterious. But as we reflect upon all of these things, we can consider various ways to see how God is working on us. So do you remember a time when you were less sanctified? Can you look back and say, uh, there are particular sins that I know that by God's grace, he has allowed me to work through. Do you remember times when you were less sanctified? Do you sense the, the indwelling Holy Spirit when you go astray and you sin? Are, is there conviction present in your heart? Do you have a, a hatred for sin? Psalm 119, 104 says, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Do you have a hatred for sin? Do you despise it? Do you want to put it to death? Is there a spiritual performance of duties from the heart with a principle of love? Paul says, through love serve one another. He speaks elsewhere in Galatians about a faith that is worked out in love. There there needs to be a principle of love that works itself out by faith. That's the difference you think of, of the life of the Pharisees this morning, which is their righteousness was merely outward and external. Paul says, through love serve one another. By faith, for God's glory. Next, do you have a well-ordered life of godliness? First Peter 1.15, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Do you seek to order your life well uh, with a frame of godliness? And then do you have a steadfast resolution unto serving God? Uh, Thomas Watson once again says this, The sanctified man prefers sanctity before safety and would rather keep his conscience pure than his skin whole. He says as Job, my integrity I will hold fast and I will not let it go. He would rather part with his life than with his conscience. We can see there are many ways in which we we can sense uh, the work of God in us, but Ultimately, if we tether ourselves to Scripture, we look at the life that we are called to live and we say, am I living this life? So after the three aspects of a sanctified life in Ephesians 4, Paul says very simply, therefore you must put off falsehood, you must speak truthfully, you must not sin in your anger. And do not give the devil a foothold. Well, why does he say that? Because when we hold on to our anger, the devil has a foothold in our lives. We must not steal, right? In other words, we must respect 
property of others. We must work. We must use our time to be useful. Why? Because if we do not use our time to be useful, then temptations will abound. We must share. We must seek to give and share that which we have to those who are in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. To have your speech that is seasoned with salt, that you know the needs of others, those, your brothers and sisters whom you know and whom you love, that you have some sensitivity to their needs and you speak in accordance with that. Verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, why would it say that after uh, the call to speak in ways that build others up? Because when we speak in ways that cut others down, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The contours of a sanctified life are laid out for us again, and again, and again in Scripture. And we go to these words, and we ask God, am I living this life? Do I want to live this life? By God's grace and by his power, may it be so in all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask for your power, your grace to be known in our lives. We thank you for the grace of sanctification and that you call us to a life of holiness and righteousness. We are unable to do it ourselves. But the great glorious news of the gospel is that we look to Christ by faith and we trust that you, O God, will do these things in us. It takes patience. It takes uh, firmness in faith. It takes steadfastness. To know and to trust that these are the things that you will create in us. But we thank you. Thank you for Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you that you give these things to us. Uh, that we might live the life that you call us to. As, as we said, we are unable. But you are able. And you are mighty and strong to do it. So we thank you and we praise you in Christ. Amen.